Good morning, Machias Church family. How are you? Nice to see you. We got, like uh, Bill said, we had the opportunity to get together yesterday for the memorial and then again last night for our gospel community group leadership training. And so I've had a real good uh, dose of my family members. I look out there and I, I see something, and a lot of you I know kind of, you know, pretty intimately now. And it just seems like God has given us this big puzzle. If I could take a picture of this group in a panoramic picture, and I could take it down, I could have a puzzle made. Right? Every one of you is individual, and God made you just exactly the way you are, and gifted you with a certain gift, and here you are using it to grow together as a family of God. God made us for community, and in community is where life change happens, and this is why we're here. And so if you were gone, there'd be a hole in the puzzle, specially shaped just like you. So we're so glad you're here to complete the puzzle this morning. This morning we're going to be looking at Mark. As you know, we've been doing that for quite some time. We're going to be in chapter 9, verses 2 through 29. Now, there are two events that happen in this particular passage. One of them we call the transfiguration. We'll be going over that. And what does it mean? What is God trying to tell us here? The other one is Jesus as he drives out an evil spirit from a, a, a young person, and his disciples have been trying to do it, and they failed. And Christ comes and does that. So we're going to be looking at the implications of these things as we go. But before that... If I was to go over to Doc's Tavern on a busy night and stand up on the bar and ask the room a question, if you could have anything you want, anything you want, what would it be? And I guess that I would get a number of different answers. Maybe it would be another round of Hefeweizen, I don't know. But there would be a number of different answers. Then I could come in here. Then I could say, if I could give you anything you want, you could have anything you want, what would it be? I think I better get to there. That's the title of the sermon. I would get probably some different answers as well. Now, they might be different answers from the ones I got at Doc's. Hopefully. But let me tell you this, if I could ask both of those same groups of people that same question 150 years from now, there would only be one answer. There would only be one answer. Now, what will we all have in common by then? We'll be dead. <laughs> and the one answer will be this. If I could have anything I wanted, anything I wanted, it would be this, that I would be the object of an intimate love relationship with the God of the universe. Because when we are gone from here, that's the only thing that's going to matter. Because some of us will have it. Others will not. Those of us that have it, that have that love relationship, will understand what it means to be a child of God without a sin nature in a glorified body living in an intimate face-to-face -face relationship with Jesus. And everybody else is going to wish they had. 
So I say there are three, and I put the most important questions and eh, maybe I'm stretching, but they are very important questions. Let me put it that way. There are very important questions in life, in life in general. If you're going to ask, what do I need to know in life? It's going to boil down to this, these three questions at some point. If you are going to answer the question the way I had just asked the question, what can you have that's, that is the most important? It would be, I want an intimate love relationship with God of the universe for eternity. There's a way to get there. And it revolves around these three questions. Who is this Jesus? What did he accomplish? And how do I make sure that I take full advantage of it? The answers to all these questions are necessary and needed to ensure that the hope of the gospel will be applied to you. We need to get all three of these questions right. Okay, how do we do that? How does God reveal the answers to these questions that we have? These very, very important questions. How would you like to be asked to do something and not know what it was they were asking? No. Do you think God would do that to us? No, he doesn't. He says, I am going to reveal to you the answers to the questions that are most necessary for you to end up in a personal and intimate love relationship with me. How does he do that? Just read it. Well, you get to read it up there. I get to read it down there. There you go, man. So you think there is a reason why we have this thing right here and that it's more than just a bunch of words written down, that it is actually a life-changing thing? That in this, in this thing, if I stick to it, you can be changed. Now, you, there's transformation. It says in here, um, God is working in us to transform us into the image of Jesus. And one of the reasons and one of the ways that he does it is through his word by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so if we came here today and we said, look, I want to be changed. I want to be transformed. Guess what? God is doing his part. We're going to be preaching and teaching through God's word. And it has the power to change us and transform us into the image of Jesus. Are you going to be transformed a little bit today in this community where everybody came together and brought their Holy Spirit with them and we're going to listen to God's word? Guess what? Some of that's up to you. Do I want to really accept the wisdom of God's word so that it can change my life? We'll see. Okay, so I told you that I thought there was a very, very important question. Who is this Jesus? Question number one. Now, we know, and, and Carl has said it a number of times, and so did Andy a few weeks ago, that who Jesus is is a very important and main theme in the book of Mark. Now, okay, so there, there are actually three questions, right? Who is this Jesus? What did he accomplish? How do, I make, how do I take advantage? So here we have Jesus. And who is he? And we're going to talk about it in a little bit why that is so important that I know that. But we have seen throughout the book of Mark, now I try to find references and go back in Mark for most of them, and say, what do we know about Jesus so far? What has he shown us? Well, he's shown us that he's a teacher in Mark 1, uh, 
21. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And so Jesus was very clearly a teacher, and they called him rabbi, and Peter called him rabbi, and, and the, the, the disciples called him rabbi. Rabbi, great teacher. Was Jesus a teacher? Yes. Were there other teachers? Yes. Was that anything really super special? No. But he was a good teacher. Okay, what about Jesus the healer? Have we seen so far in Mark where Jesus has been the healer? When he has healed people, we've seen multiple instances where Jesus casts out demons, where, where Jesus heals the blind man, where, where Jesus cures someone of leprosy. We have seen that Jesus has come as a healer. Have there been other healers? Yes. Is, is Jesus' reputation as a healer making him very popular in the culture that he's in? Absolutely. Hey, Jesus, hey, there's a guy over here. He's healing people of blindness. I'm in for that. Was that Jesus' mission? Was that what made Jesus special? No. Was he a healer? Yes. Was he very good at it? Yes. Was that what saves you from your sins? No. Was Jesus a prophet? We look here at Luke 17, or 7.16. And fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us. God has visited his people. And this report about him, Jesus, spread throughout the whole country of Judea and all the surrounding countries. And so, was Jesus a prophet? Remember the lady at the well, and Jesus came and told her about what she had been doing. And she said, Oh, you must be a great prophet, for you know all the things about me. And she went back into town, and she told all the people, There's a guy here who told me everything about myself. you got to come hear him. Was Jesus a prophet? Yes, he was a prophet. Is that what saved you from your sins? How about Jesus the Messiah? Here's a little more difficult one. Now, there's a Messiah. You know what the Messiah is supposed to be? The anointed one of God who has come to deliver his people. And the Jews at that time had been expecting Messiah. And many, many people have risen up by this time in culture, in this time frame, and said, I am the one, I am the one. I am the Messiah. I am the gifted one of God. And all, oh, one after another, they would fall and they would recognize this is not him. And so there's Jesus, the suffering servant in Mark 8.31. In fact, we just heard that one. And it is, and he began to teach them, Jesus, teaching his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So Jesus was the suffering servant, and he was setting us an example of humility and service. But was that what saved you from your sins? No. Was it a great example? Was it confusing to the disciples? I can absolutely assure you that they did not expect Messiah to be a servant and wash their feet. 
Okay, they were expecting something completely different. So there was a real problem, and we look at the disciples and we say, how can you guys not get this? How can you guys not understand that this Jesus is, is who he is? And we look at it now in hindsight and we say, it must have been completely obvious. Look at the things he's doing. Look at all these things he has done, miracles that he's performed. How could you miss it? Well, they were having a really difficult time reconciling the last two with the first four because they were expecting something entirely different entirely different who is this guy that's claiming to be messiah we're expecting this guy to come and and, and form a great army and throw out the romans and reestablish the nation of israel as the prominent nation of god and that we would institute a theocracy again where god is indeed the leader and he will punish all of those who are not his and will put us back in the primary position and okay even the disciples god when are you going to do this jesus when are we going to start forming an army i get you're out here teaching people and i get all this but when are we going to start the movement and they didn't understand at all what jesus true mission was because he wasn't the messiah they were expecting messiah had come and they missed it Even the disciples, even the disciples, they knew he was a great man and they knew he could do these things. But you know what? Even though he called himself the Son of God and the Son of Man, even those titles didn't necessarily reveal to those around him exactly who he was. Because the very last one is the most important. If you can get all kinds of things right about Jesus and who he was, and if you miss the last one, none of it is going to save you. Jesus was God. And so in this passage, as we get there, we're going to see how Jesus and God or demonstrates that Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just a healer. He's not just a teacher. He's not just Messiah. He is God. Why is that important? We're going to talk about that. Because with, I'll tell you this. If Jesus wasn't God, none of us are saved. Okay. Moving on to the actual passage. The transfiguration, the glory of Jesus' divinity revealed. Yeah, related there. It's probably a typo on my part. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone, and there, was, there he was, transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anything in the world could bleach them. And there appeared with him Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Now, does this sound familiar to you? This is Jesus. He goes up on a mountain. Has that ever happened before? Yes. We've seen God talk to people up on a mountain. There's something symbolic and significant about that. Jesus is up on the mountain. He goes there intentionally with three of his disciples, the close ones, the close-knit of his people that he's trying to disciple personally. And he goes up there, and, and, and what is it that they see? Light. That's always been symbolic of purity in God. When God came, he would, he would announce things and there would be light. And when Moses went up into Mount Sinai and he talked with God, he said, God, show me your glory. What did God do? 
He carved out a little place in the rock because he said, no man can look on me and live. And so he says, I'm going to put you back inside this rock and I'm going to put my hand over you, although, guess what? Well, even the next part, he says, I'm going to show you my passing glory. And it actually, literally is translated the hinder parts of God. You're going to come out and you're going to see the hinder parts of God. Now, God doesn't have a body. He's spirit. And he doesn't necessarily have a front or a back. And he doesn't necessarily have a hand. But these are languages that we can understand. But he's basically saying, look, you can't look on me full blast or you'd be vaporized. And so I'm going to do this. I'm going to protect you. And you're going to come out and see the hinder part of me and the glory trail that I leave behind. And what happened when that happened? What happened to Moses? Yes, his face began to glow. But was that some sort of glory that was given to Moses? No, it was the reflection of God's glory. And yet here's Jesus, God's son, goes up into the mountain and he begins to emanate glory from himself. And the glory that was voluntarily and completely veiled by Jesus for his divinity is exposed for a brief period of time and God glorifies his son and confirms to the disciples this is not just a man this is not just a teacher this is not just a healer this is not just a servant this is my son it's an amazing thing and who is there with him Moses and Elijah what's the what's the significance of that Well, I think there's a number of things. One of them is there's a resurrection. Here are people that are gone, that have been gone, and they're brought back as Jesus is is confirmed in his glory that I am here for all those that are mine, living or dead, and there is hope of a new life after this one. There's some other speculation about Moses and Elijah. I, I, I had read one commentator that said, well, one represents the law. And one represents the prophets, the law and the prophets, who Jesus said, testify about me. Now, which one's the law? Moses. Which one's the prophets? Elijah. There's another kind of curious fact, though, about that. Did you know that Moses died and was resurrected? And did you know that Elijah did not die? He's one of only two people that we know of in Scripture that never tasted death. Elijah was taken up into heaven. And exposed to God's glory as as the chariot of God came down and picked him up. So this this point was, well, maybe it represents those that are dead when Jesus returned, had had died and are going to be resurrected. And maybe Elijah represents those of us that are alive in Christ and never knew death. Maybe. But there they were. And it was significant that God reigned over both sin and death. Okay. What was the apostles' initial reaction to this? And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, there's some significance maybe about them wanting to make three tents for him, and I think they were just really happy just to be there. The the, the disciples like, well, let's do something for them here. This is God and, and Elijah and Moses. Moses. Now, I'm not exactly sure. I don't think Moses wore a name tag. Maybe he did. I don't know. And I'm not exactly sure how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. Maybe they were just said, hey, Moses here. I don't know. But they knew, according to this. And I'm sure there was some significance. These were Jews. And they know all about Moses and Elijah and their importance. And so they're a little bit like, whoa, 
What should we do? I mean, can we, should we clean up a little bit, you know, sweep the area and make it nice? Well, we'll build you a couple of tents. You can get in there. But they were afraid. Why do you think maybe they were afraid? I'll tell you one thing. Human beings cannot be exposed to the glory of God in their carnal state and not be terrified. But isn't this amazing that Jesus is the perfect intermediary between God. Here he was, God and man, and here I am and I'm going to, you're going to see my glory and right away I'm going to come back and I am going to be that person that stands between you and God, the perfect ambassador for God, the perfect intermediary where he stands between us and God and bridges the gap so that the relationship can be restored. And that's being demonstrated right here. Okay, then God actually acknowledges his son, and in the cloud overshadows him, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Does this sound familiar to you? Has this happened kind of before? Yeah, when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now God changes the message a little bit here, doesn't he? He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Because he has the very words of life. When Jesus had said some things that offended the crowds, and the crowds were leaving, and he turns to his disciples and he says, well, what about you guys? And what was Peter's response? Teacher, where can we go? You have the very words of life. God knows that. We need to know that. We need to know that Jesus is God and he has the very words of life if we're going to take advantage of the hope of the gospel message. And God lets us know, hey man, whatever he says, listen up. It's important. Rising from the dead. And as they were coming down the mountain, he changed he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, but questioning, what does this rising from the dead mean? What does this rising from the dead mean? It means it's the only hope you have. And in fact, Paul says and, and tells us in, in uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen, if this... If in this life only we have our hope, we are the most to be pitied. I don't know if you've recognized it, but this life is tough. And there are some immense benefits of being a child of God right here, right now. Some of which we may be able to get to talk to you in a minute. But if this is it, I'm really bummed. But it isn't it. And so when Jesus is saying, look. Yes, you are going to see me in my glory, but not now. It's coming. But our hope is in a restored relationship with God in the next phase of our existence as we live forever in the new heaven and the new earth in our glorified bodies face-to-face with Jesus. And that is the hope that we have. And that's one of the points that he's trying to demonstrate when he tells them, I will be resurrected. And so will you. Okay, so they ask him about the Elijah, and Elijah must come. And they said, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? Now, you remember where it says that, anybody? 
I know Carl does. He preached on it. The last verses of Malachi. And it talks about Elijah must come first. Before the Son of Man returns in the day of the Lord, Elijah must come first. In fact, if you guys remember when the guy was here and did the Seder dinner? You remember that? And we, I know some of you were here. Come on, raise your hand. Yes, okay. It was really something really interesting, and he kind of made a joke of it that is one of his uncles had tricked him with this because they say something at the end, or, or maybe not quite at the end, but in there where they say, go outside and see if you can see Elijah. And they're referring to this because Elijah must return before the Son of Man. And so they would, he said, yeah, his uncle said, hey, no, he's out there actually, or he dressed up like him, and he was trying to trick his, his nephew. And so... That was part of it, that they're expecting Elijah to return. And so in this case, Jesus is going to let them, Elijah did come, and they had their way with him. But what was all that about? He did whatever they pleased. Well, it was John the Baptist, and he came and escorted in the new kingdom and was paving the way for the Messiah. And he said, I must decrease and he must increase. And what did they do? They killed him. And so the prophecy had been fulfilled, and this was God's plan all along, that he would bring the Messiah, and he would, Elijah, who was John the Baptist, would come first. And they missed that as well. Jesus came, well, I missed parts. God's plan has always been that Jesus would be the answer, the God-man, and that he had to come in order to reconcile man back to God. It was prophesied many years before, thousands of years before, exactly what was going to happen. So the conclusion is, who is this Jesus? God. Now, why is that important? Because if Jesus is not God, you're not saved. Because only God could pay the price for our sin and reconcile the relationship back to himself. If Jesus wasn't God, we have no hope. And yet, did they understand it? Did they recognize it at this point? That this man who was doing what he was doing, that was saying what he was saying, that was going to give his life for ransom for many and then be resurrected, did they understand it? I don't think so. Do they eventually? They do. They do. John writes in his letter, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Peter, in his declaration uh, on the day of Pentecost, in the book of Acts, says, This Jesus that you crucified, God made both Lord and Savior. And Paul tells us, in the book of uh, Philippians chapter 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. They all got it eventually. But is it important that we understand that Jesus was God? It, it is the foundation of the gospel message. If you can be, believe all kinds of things about Jesus, and many people do, but if you don't believe that he's God, that he came and took the sin of all mankind upon himself, then you are still in your sin. Now, I'm looking around this room, and I'm thinking, there's pretty much a whole bunch of people in here that already know that, and have already accepted that. But out there, there's a whole bunch of people that need to know that. That it's the only way. 
that they have to understand not only did Jesus come, but that Jesus was God and he died for their sins if they want to take advantage of the message of the hope of the gospel. We're going to have to move along quickly to find out whether this poor person got their demon taken out. Okay, next question then. Question number two. What did Jesus accomplish? I'm going to tell you right now, he gained victory over sin and death. And that is ultimately required for us to be reconciled to God. Because God is a God that's completely just. God is a God who's completely holy. He could not stand the fact that there was sin because of his justice. Somebody had to pay. And Jesus Christ gained victory over sin with his death. And the consequences of that, or consequences of that sin, which is our death, spiritual death, separation from God. That's what Jesus accomplished. So he comes down off the mountain. Isn't that very typical of Jesus? He comes down off the mountain where his glory was revealed, and he puts back on his manness, and he goes in there, and he gets into the, to the people and serves them as the suffering servant. And he goes down, and he gets dirty, and he goes after the sheep, and the shepherd gets in there with the sheep and gets dirty and changes their lives, and Jesus is setting us an example that I come down from my glory, and, and I have embraced my humanity in humility, and I am here to heal. And so he comes upon this kid, and he comes back down off the mountain, and he sees his disciples, and there's a great crowd, and scribes are arguing with him, and immediately the entire crowd, when they see him, are greatly amazed, and they run up to him, and they say, Jesus, Jesus. And he says, what are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd said, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth, becomes rigid. So I asked the disciples to cast that out. And they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I going to bear with you? Bring him here. And so Jesus does it. And he has victory over sin as he drives out the demon. But he gets on them a little bit for their faith, doesn't he? He says, and they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw it, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his, fa asked his father, how long has it, this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it's often cast him into fire and into water and tries to destroy him. But if there's anything you can do, have compassion on us and help. And Jesus says to him, if you can, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus is acknowledging the need for faith. And he's getting on this generation about their lack of faith. You can't make someone believe something they don't believe. That's not really what faith is. Faith is believing things that don't, can't seem to be possible, but you believe them anyway. And where does that faith come from? Because the Bible says it's impossible to please God without it. Where does that faith come from? The faith that overcomes sin, where does it come from? It comes from God, that's where. It says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 4, By grace you've been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
God says if you need to overcome, and you do need to overcome, sin in your life, both for reconciliation with God and just to live the abundant Christian life that God has in store for you here, Jesus died to overcome sin and death both in eternity and for today in my life. But it can only be done by faith. There are so many common things about Scripture. When we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, we this morning in Sunday school, we were talking about the book of Judges where um, Gabriel was going into a battle where he was going to defeat the Midianites and God had whittled down his army to 300 against 135,000. Now, I don't know about your life, but I don't know if you ever feel like you're 300 facing 135,000. But what was God's point there? Faith is needed to defeat the sin that is infecting the land of my people. It's always about God doing it through faith in his power in our lives. And when Jesus comes down off that mountain and begins to serve people by driving out this demon, he is telling us in a very poignant way that I have the victory over sin and death. You guys tried to do this one, but you couldn't because it required two things. And one of them he's going to share with us right here at the end. Nope, actually, I need to read that one. I left the slide off, sorry. The last verse is saying, When Jesus saw that the crowd came running, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing terribly, he came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. He arose, and when he had entered the house, his disciples said, Why couldn't we do it? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So there were two things required to to gain victory over sin in this particular instance. One of them was faith, and the second one was prayer. But what does prayer represent? What does prayer represent? That I'm going to the source of the power to get the job done. God. Got to be done in faith. Got to be done in the power of God. That's what saved you when Jesus Christ gained victory over sin and death in your life. That's what saved you. And that's the same power that's giving you victory over sin and death in your life now. So, what's the conclusion? What do we need to know? Who's this Jesus? God. What did he accomplish? Victory over sin and death in my life so that I can enjoy a, re- a reconciled relationship with God. And how do I make sure that I obtain the hope of the gospel message? That's right. One of them, right? God gives us the answers to the question, and so we read it in there. But what do I need to do to make sure that the gospel message and God's free gift of salvation and offer to me that I take advantage of it? I have to accept it. Right? And so I have to know it. In order to accept it, I have to know it. And in order to know it, I have to hear it or read it. God has to come in and do a work in my life called regeneration and give me a new heart so that I'll understand it. And through God's Holy Spirit, I can accept the message of the gospel and then be saved and reconciled back to God. 
And it's that same process where God is working in your life to transform you back into the image of Jesus Christ so that the same victory over sin and death that you're going to experience in eternity, you can have today. God died so that I could be saved. God died so that I could be holy. It's up to God. It takes faith and it takes our reliance on the power that God gives us through his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have given us the answers to all the things that really matter right here in your word so that we aren't left wondering What do I need to do? What do I need to do, God, so that I can be sure that I'm with you in eternity? And it's all there. Lord, help that message change us to both believe in you, trust in you, have faith in you, and rely on your power when it's so easy for us to do it in the flesh. And so we just thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you for bringing us together as a church family so that as iron sharpens iron, we can grow in community. And we just thank you for what you're going to do both in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.